Your notes and information right here, right now. Welcome to Just Twerts, your weekly helper for anything twerts related. I'm your host, Brent Lian. Oh, and hey, by the way. We're at Just Towards the Podcast. Today I'm joined by Professor Barbara McDonald. Our topic is causation and remoteness. This topic was quite confusing when I was doing the unit, so today we'll dive into the very details of、uh, the very much factors involved in this topic. Our first question today is Could you just briefly talk about the difference between factual causation and scope of liability? Why do we commonly say that causation is a question of fact and liability is a question of law? Right. Well, traditionally, the law had to find some ways in which to limit liability for negligence because the courts were very concerned that if you didn't have the restrictions of a pre existing contract and if you simply said that people were liable to Anyone to whom they, had, whom they had injured, there would be extraordinarily expansive liability. So the law developed different ways in which to restrict liability. One of the most important ways is by saying that before you can be liable for negligence, you have to have had a legal duty of care, which courts recognise. So the duty of care concept is a very important way in which judges restricted. The propensity of juries to be too sympathetic to victims and to make defendants liable too easily by saying, well, we're in charge of the duty issue, whether there's a duty in law. Once they'd formulated the duty, then they would go to breach. And then the final point at which the judges had a role in restricting liability was through this concept in the common law of remoteness. Now, the Civil Liability Act doesn't talk about remoteness of damage. What it now talks about is scope of liability. But It doesn't matter what words they use, it really is about the same concept. It's about the limits of liability, the scope of liability, the, the bounds of liability, whether or not the particular damage which the plaintiff is claiming is too remote from what the defendant did. And by moving away from a factual issue as to whether or not the damage was caused by the defendant to an evaluation of whether the defendant should be responsible for it, the court is able to move away. An issue from the jury, if there was one, to the court itself by saying, well, look, even if that damage is caused in the sense that it satisfies the usual but for test, we're still going to say that it's not within the scope of liability. There are various reasons why it's not in the scope. Now, that could be because it's not the type of damage that you could have foreseen would flow from what you did, or it could be some other reason. A recent example of a case where the court said, even though causation was satisfied, The damage was not within the scope, was Wallace and Cam, which was a case where the High Court said, well, we're not going to make a doctor liable for something that did happen, which the patient was prepared to risk, simply because we didn't warn you about something which didn't happen. We're not going to make you liable. Even though if you had been warned about the thing which didn't happen, you might not have gone ahead with the operation. Is it under the failure to warn cases? It was a failure to warn case, right, yes. Right. And, they, and the High Court said, well, factual causation on the but for test is, is actually satisfied, but it's not within the scope of a 
doctor's liability to make a doctor liable for something which the patient was willing to risk simply because there was something else which they were not willing to risk and which they were not warned about. They use the concept of scope. But it is a difficult issue. I think as I've pointed out to students, there are not many cases which come down to the issue of scope of liability. Usually you've just, you've almost determined scope of liability by determining that there's a duty to prevent that sort of damage and that the duty was breached and that causation was satisfied. So there haven't been a lot of cases on scope of liability under Section 5D, just as there were not many cases cases on remoteness. There are a few, but generally speaking, duty is the biggest legal hurdle, not scope of liability. All right. Um, now, just moving on to what we call factual causation. Yeah. We have the very famous case of March and Stratmere. Yeah. In that case, it was formulated that there's a test of but for, where uh, you ask the question, would the thing happen but for the event in question? Yeah. However, this was criticized in the case of Strawn and Wartworth that it tends to lead to uh, undesirable results. The new test as specified in Section 5D, 1A of the CLA is one of necessary condition. So I guess the question is, with the CLA formation, would we still be required to discuss the but-for test or is it used to determine what constitutes a necessary condition or is it like just completely out of fashion? No, no, not at all. And in fact, again, as Wallace, as the High Court discussed in Wallace versus Cam, the necessary condition test in Section 5D... I think it's 1A. 1A of the Civil Liability Act is actually exactly the same thing as the but-for test. Right. Um, necessary conditions, sine qua non, to use the Latin expression. In all cases, what you are asking is, was the defence negligence a necessary condition of the plaintiff's harm? If it would have, If the harm would have happened anyway, if it would have happened regardless of the negligence of the defendant, then the defendant's negligence is not a necessary cause. It's not a necessary condition. So the High Court has recognised that the but-for test and the necessary condition test are both the same. Now, you mention that in Woolworths and Strong, the High Court said that the but-for test leads can lead to absurd results or I'm not sure what... I think it's undesirable conditions. Undesirable results, yes. The trouble with the but-for test is that it doesn't give you a solution in a case of two equally sufficient causes, often called the two hunters case. If two hunters shoot someone through the heart at precisely the same moment, that's the two hunters case. This is an expression that's used all the time in talking about causation, the two hunters case then it would be absurd to apply the but-for test because each hunter would be would have been able to say, well, this, this guy would have died anyway. Mm. And yet we know that this guy died as a result of the two shots. Now, which one, they happened at the same moment. We have no way of knowing infinitesimally which, if one did actually hit, or whether it's precisely the same moment, but it would be absurd for both hunters to say, well, he would have died anyway, therefore I'm not to blame, which would, so the but-for test doesn't work when you have two or more equally sufficient causes. Having said that, I don't know of a two hunters case in Australia. It sounds like an almost philosophical formation. It is. It's very much a philosophical idea. There is the odd case. There was a case called Summers versus Tice, T-I-C-E, in the US many years ago, where the court there reversed the onus of proof. That was their way to get around this problem. Now, in our law, Section 5D theoretically makes provision for such a case because Section 5D2 says or implies that the court may still determine that factual causation is satisfied even where the necessary condition test is not satisfied. But the court has to do it in accordance with established principles, 
it must be an exceptional case and the court has to say why responsibility for harm should be imposed on the defendant. As far as I know, there hasn't been a case of Section 5D2 yet like that. So usually the but-for test will do the job. The difference between the but-for test under March and Stramari and the necessary condition test in 5D is that in March and Stramari, the High Court said it's only a starting point and it gives way to common sense. In 5D, there's no mention of common sense. And so one of the arguments that's arisen is whether common sense is still implicit in that or whether you consider common sense when you talk about scope. What do you think about that? Um, look, I can see that there's an argument that common sense does have a role. And, and the, the way I think it has a role is this, that when you're deciding whether something's a necessary condition, you have to eliminate first things or events that are mere preconditions. And, you know, the, the classic example is, well, the defendant wouldn't have been there if the defendant's grandparents hadn't met. I mean, that's a necessary condition of the defendant being there, but it's not a cause of the defendant doing what they did. True. It's a mere precondition. Now, that's an extreme example, yeah. but sometimes you might get less extreme examples where my argument is if all the defendant did was happen to get someone to a time and place where something happened to them, it may be a mere precondition and that's it. Justice Dean talked about this in March and Stramari. He drew this distinction as part of the common sense issue and he gave the terrible example, particularly now with all these awful things happening with ISIS. Um, he gave the example that you cut Having a head, you've got to have a head before you can be decapitated, but having a head is not a cause of being decapitated. Yeah, it's think, a mere precondition. I, I remember reading about that. It's a gruesome example <laughs> that he gave. That was. I uh, hope it doesn't disturb your listeners. I, I think the listeners should probably check out the case because that judgment was quite refreshing. Yes. Um, all right. So for our third question, what, what are some cases on the topic of causation that you consider to be particularly interesting? Maybe aside from the one that we just discussed? Oh, well, I think March and Stramari was an interesting case, mainly because I think, well, two reasons. One is because you could think about um, how it would be decided differently today when intoxication is such a powerful defence. I think poor old Mr March um, wouldn't have had much hope in New South Wales these days, firstly. But secondly, because I think Mason's judgment is so clear. It's such a wonderful exposition of causation, and I think it's really interesting. Wallace and Cam is a very difficult case to read. It's the one about the patient. Knowledge? Yes, it's it's now in the new edition of the case book. Oh, yeah. It's a difficult case. It's the one about the patient not being warned of something which he should have been warned about, but which did not happen. Yeah. So it has some really interesting discussions about causation, but it is quite difficult to read, I have to say. For a first-year taught student, its main value is that the High Court clearly describes Section 5D and analyzes it. It's when it gets to the application to the facts that it gets quite complicated to read. Right. Yep. Uh, I think that's enough for uh, factual causation. Yep. Would you want to add anything to Well, it? the only thing is I think, as I've said, I think when students are thinking about factual causation, I mean, the other cases they need to think about, Chapman and Hearst, Dorset Yacht Company in the Home Office, mm. and March and, uh, sorry, Marnie and Krusich. Those are all important cases yes. because they're, they're very interesting factual situations and they illustrate how you can still be liable for someone else's wrongful conduct and it will not be treated as a novus actus interveniens, which breaks the chain of causation. That's great. Let's just move on to scope of liability. Yeah. It's more commonly called, I think, remoteness of damage. Well, that's how the common law, that's what the common law called it. The common mm. law called it remoteness of damage. And it was re 
remote, the idea of remoteness of damage, in other words, that there is a limit to what you are liable for, even if you've breached your duty, there must be a limit, has been around, obviously, in all torts and all contracts. You spend a lot of time in contract law talking about Hadley yeah. and Baxendale and remoteness of damage in contract. And a lot of it comes back to, well, what, what did you agree to do in the contract? You know, That's what true. did the parties have in contemplation? In tort, it may, it's more about, well, either... If it was an intentional tort, the High Court has said that the test of remoteness is what whether or not the damage is a natural and probable result of what you've done, whereas in negligence, because everything circles around the concept of reasonable foreseeability, the Privy Council and the Wagon Man Number 1 said the test of remoteness for negligence is whether or not the type of damage is reasonably foreseeable. Not, not the manner in which Not the manner in which yeah. it occurred and not the extent. So that's the very important eggshell skull rule. You don't Could, have to foresee the can extent. We, can we just like formulate an example of it, maybe? Well, an example is that if, if let's say, in a road accident um, and let's say you're driving negligently you're you know text messaging while you're driving and you don't see that the car in front of you stopped and you ram into the car in front of you because you weren't paying attention as a driver you've clearly got a duty of care to people in the car in front of you that's well established you breach that duty you've caused them to suffer personal injury now it just so happens that one of the people sitting in the car in front of you had actually was just getting over an operation and had a very had a neck already in a brace or something was already in a very sensitive state perhaps they have osteoarthritis and they have very brittle bones or something that's, like that's that that's really unfortunate to hear <laughs> so so for that person this whiplash injury is going to be very serious, even yeah. though for most people, they'll get over whiplash in a couple of weeks or something like that. Because you could foresee personal injury as a type of damage, you are liable for the full extent of that injury, even if they happen to have brittle bones or an eggshell skull or they were susceptible. It's a very important principle, which is separate from the remoteness principle that you have to be able to foresee the type of damage. If you categorize type of damage very broadly, of course, it means it's going to be easier to satisfy. Um, if you categorize it very narrowly, it's going to be harder to satisfy, but usually it's categorized very broadly. Personal injury, property damage, economic loss, psychiatric injury. But again, as I point out, normally you will have, you will almost have foreseen the type of damage when you formulated the duty. Yeah. If, for example, you formulated the duty of care as one to avoid psychiatric injury to people like that, well, you've already decided the type of damage, haven't you? That's Again, true. which is why scope of liability comes back to the duty a lot. Is that, is that also one of the reasons why we don't have as many cases on this area? Because I think so, because it's mostly... under duty? Yeah, mostly the, the hard cases in tort in terms of legal responsibility tend to be about whether there's a duty of care in the first place. Right. Is right. it the sort of thing that defendant has to avoid? I think from the CLA, there's, I think it was Section 1B. Let me just check. Section 5, one. Section 5D1B. Yeah, Section 5D. Yeah, I think it specifies scope of liability depends on whether it's appropriate to extend yes. liability to uh, in an exceptional case. Yes. Like, in order to consider the appropriateness of extending the liability, what are some of the policy considerations? Well, that's a very good question because the legislation is absolutely silent as to why it would be appropriate. And when you then have a look at Section 5D4, you'll see that the Civil Liability Act says, for the purpose of determining the scope of liability, the court is to consider whether or not and why responsibility for the harm should be imposed. But again, it doesn't give any reasons. It's quite vague. It's very vague. Yeah. And if you contrast it with 5B 
which sets out a whole lot of factors mm -hmm. like probability, likely seriousness, burden, etc., or with Section 32 on mental illness, right. where the court is given a whole lot of factors to consider, Section 5D1B is totally lacking in any factors for the court to consider. <sighs> Look, I think the whole point of 5D was actually to do what Justice McHugh suggested in March and Stamari in his dissenting judgment, which is separate the value judgments from factual causation. In his view, you start with factual causation, the but-for test, recognising that sometimes it doesn't work. He recognised that too. But everything else, common sense, why, type of damage, whether something's an oversactus, everything else should go into scope of liability. Should your liability extend to what someone else did? Should your liability extend to the fact that you got a infection in the hospital. You know, all of those things should go into scope. And really, that's what 5D was doing. Remembering that the civil liability was intended to make it harder for plaintiffs to sue, I think I would probably doubt whether it's achieved that objective, because when plaintiffs have failed, I think they would have failed anyway. <laughs> you know, if they failed the but-for test if they failed 5D1A, they would have failed the but-for test. Mm -hmm. If it didn't extend to scope, it's because the court would have said, well, it's not the type of harm, that it wasn't the duty that the person had. You know, I, I actually don't think it's made a big difference. It was influenced very much, it's said, by the work of Jane Stapleton, who's written a lot on causation and who suggested that the court should distinguish between factual causation and, and value judgments, as Justice McHugh suggested too. But Jane Stapleton has written about this section in the Federal Law Review, and she says really all Section 5D does is tell judges to give their reasons. That's all it does. <laughs> really all it does is tell judges to give their reasons. It has not overtaken the judges. I suppose the other important thing about 5D is that in 5D2, it does allow them to find causation established even though the but-for test is not satisfied, but again, it doesn't tell them how they can do it. Yeah. And Section 5E says the plaintiff always bears the onus of proving any fact relevant to the issue of causation. So it sounds as though a court is never going to be able to reverse the onus of proof on causation because of 5E. So what's the point of it? I don't I have to say I don't really know. I don't know whether we're better off with 5D than we were without it. The one value of putting something in legislation is that it's easy for people to find. Mm. It's easier to, for people to find this than it is to read Justice Mason's judgment and pick out the key points. But apart from that, if you've then got to go to case law to actually work out what it means, then we're back to square one a bit, aren't we? Yeah, definitely. I, I think mm. on one of our previous episodes, we actually talked with Dr. Belinda Reef. Oh, yes. She was also expressing some disapproval with 5B and 5C. Yes. Because we, I think our topic was about uh, just duty of care in general. Yes. So uh, was it breach? Breach I, I probably. Yeah, if you're talking about 5B, you would have been talking about breach. Yes. Yeah, because so as all your students know, and I will take this opportunity to remind them, as all your students know, even though Section 5B is headed duty of care, it's got nothing to do with duty. It's all about breach. So they should take a very large marker pen and cross out the words duty of care in their copy of on page 56. <laughs> Seven of the course guide because Section Five B is not about duty; it's about breach. If the if the CLA is having like quite a bit of problem, yeah. when do you reckon it's going to get fixed? <laughs> uh, well, we were talking about that today when we were talking about proportionate liabilities, Part Four, which was enacted in two thousand and two and two thousand and four, and 
where there's been a, a nine-year project to try and fix it, but they can't fix it because pe- nobody can agree on what it should say. Now, you would have thought they'd work that out before they brought it in as legislation, but they didn't. So part four on proportionate liability, which people study in torts and contracts too, is about proportionate liability, and it varies from state to state. So it's very confusing for a company that works in different states, but it hasn't been fixed. So look, when will the Civil Liability Act get fixed? Good question. A number of torts academics are putting together a a research application grant to take it bit by bit and do a model of how it should be fixed. Is this like a consensus? People are all thinking the CLA is... Yes, but but whether or not the parliament would listen to us is another matter. That's good, yeah. Okay, for the second last question, can we just briefly talk about the cases where I think you mentioned earlier there is a failure to warn? Yes. One of the points about failure to warn is it's well known in the common law, this was decided, but it's also reinforced by section 5D3, subsection 3, that if the case is a failure to warn case, you have to, that the plaintiff has to prove that if they personally had been warned, they personally would have heeded the warning. Section 5D3 doesn't talk about warnings, but that's what it's about. It's saying if it's relevant to ask what the person would have done if the pers- if the defendant had not been negligent, the matter is to be determined subjectively. And further, it goes on, any statement made by the plaintiff after suffering the harm about what he or she would have done is inadmissible unless it's against their interests. Again, this is all part of the fact that the civil liability was meant to make it harder for plaintiffs. So in other words, Section 5D3 means that you can't turn up after you've had an operation and say, if I had been warned of this, I would not have had the operation. You can bring other evidence, but you, you need to go back to evidence of yourself before the operation. So it's in foresight, not in hindsight. Exactly. And show, well, and you've got to show that you personally were very concerned about risks and you were very risk averse, mm. that you heeded warnings very carefully, or that you personally were deeply concerned about the particular risk, like Mrs. Whittaker in Rogers and Whittaker. She, the evidence was that she was keenly acutely concerned, always asking of any risk to her good eye. Right. Does it also require that the risk has to materialize? Yes. And is this... That's Wallace and Cam. The risk that you were not warned about must materialize. And it has to relate to serious injury or death? Is that required? It doesn't have to relate to serious injury or death. It's just that Section 5.0 says you can't rely on a peer professional standard about risks of death or injury, whereas you can in other cases. Right. That's where that comes in. But failure to warn could be about anything. I mean, failure to warn... And Section 5D3 is not just about personal injury. A lot of these provisions are not about... We're studying them in torts where we're concentrating on personal injury. But a lot of these sections apply to economic loss cases for bad advice. Mm. Could be like a stock recommendation or something? Yeah, like a stock recommendation. You know, you're told by someone to take out a loan in Hong Kong dollars or Singapore dollars rather than Australian dollars because the exchange rates are going your way. But if you don't get it... But what about should you have been warned that the exchange rates could change and then you're going to have a massive liability because the Australian dollars dropped? Well, should you have been warned about that? Is that an obvious risk? Would you have heeded the warning? Section 5D3 would show you have to show that before you were given the advice, negligent advice, you would have heeded the warning. So it's 
of quite general application. Uh, for our last question today, can you talk about the difference between an intervening cause and a supervening injury? An intervening cause is talking about something that happens between the between the, the defendant's negligence and the ultimate damage which is suffered. That's intervening. Now, so and and the issue with cases like that is whether or not the defendant is to be treated as having been a cause of that intervening thing happening. So whether the intervening cause was a novice that sort of breaks the yes, chain. Yes, or whether or not it breaks the chain of causation. Right. So sometimes the defendant will be liable for something that happens, even though it's somebody else's behaviour, because it's the very kind of thing that's likely to happen, like in Chapman and Hearst. Mm. But sometimes it will be treated as a novice actus. For example, you injure someone in the leg, they go to hospital, the doctor cuts off the wrong leg. You know, that is nothing to do with the person who injured them in the left leg that the doctor cuts off the right leg. It's That's, a gross negligence. That constitutes inexcusably bad yes. medical treatment. <laughs> exactly. Inexcusably bad medical treatment. So that would be a nervous actor. So that's that's the issue of an intervening cause. We're talking about something that happens in between the, the defendant's tort and the injury. Okay, your other expression was a, what was it? A supervening injury. Yeah. I think the case at one point was jobling versus associated injuries. Supervening injury, but it could also be called a supervening cause, you know, Mm. really, um, is where something happens which is totally unrelated to the defendant. It's totally unrelated. You know, you you injure someone and then before the trial, they're injured in an earthquake. You know, you're not liable for their injury in the earthquake. And it may well be that their injuries in the earthquake are so severe that they really take over as being, they're treated as taking over as the cause. They're a vicissitude of life that's now happened so that the fact that you injured them before the earthquake is really barely relevant any longer. But Jobling's case was really a case where it was discovered that after the accident and before the trial that the plaintiff had a natural illness which would have rendered him unable to work anyway. And so the court said, well, look, we can't ignore this. Now we know what the future held for him. When we're comparing his after the tort picture with his before the tort picture, now we know that his before the tort picture actually was not looking good. He was going to get this illness, which was going to render him unfit for work. So we can't pretend that he had this rosy, rosy future when we know actually he didn't. Yeah, that was, it's a known vicissitude of life. I think it was, uh, I remember the, what was it? Um, the court cannot speculate where it knows better. Yes, it was that's right. Case, yes. Exactly. You can't speculate about what the future holds when you knew. You now know what the future held yeah. for. Um, compare that with Baker and Willoughby, which was another case of a supervening injury, a totally unrelated injury by a third party, where the court said, well, actually, we're not going to let the first defendant off the hook. We're going to say that the first defendant continues to be responsible for what they caused and the second unrelated person is only liable for any extra damage that they cause. Now, that decision has been criticised. It was criticised in Jobling. Was it really the correct decision? But everybody recognises that in Baker and Willoughby, the second person couldn't be found. The robber could not be found. You know, he shot the plaintiff in the leg and then took off. Nowhere to be found. So if the plaintiff couldn't get at least his basic damage from the first defendant, he'd be left with nothing, which... It's not fair. Not fair. Yeah. Well... I think that's the uh, that's the end of our episode today. Mm-hmm. Professor McDonald, do you have anything to say to maybe the podcast listeners? Well, only to say that if you find causation hard, you're in very good company. <laughs> that um, there I, are, I agree there that. are endless <laughs> examples that we could give people and that are used in the philosophical philosophical discussions mm. about causation. You know, let me give the one example. Somebody goes out into the desert and you you're charged with giving them enough water for the trip and you 
you don't give them enough water so that they would surely die and run out of water. However, someone else comes along and poison the water before they set off. So the person the person dies of poison, but they were going to die anyway. Yeah. So who caused the death? The person who gave them not enough water or the person who poisoned the water? I'll just leave you two with that. I won't give you an answer because I don't know what the answer is. Um, <laughs> is it safe so to say you know. that we're not going to run into exams with questions like that? No. We're not go- <laughs> we never ask you a question to which we don't have some idea of the answer. All oh, right. However, having said that, we do ask questions about grey areas of the law and what you need to do is argue as best you can from the cases you know about. And that's why I always stress that it's important to read the cases because the cases give you a a collection of facts, typical facts in which the principles work or don't work. They give you the fodder that you need to make an argument and to draw analogies. And one of the things you that you need to do when you're answering a question is show your thought process. How did you get from here to here? Show that you understand the tests that the courts use. If you come up with a different conclusion, we're not that fussed. For example, you know, we're often asked about whether someone should be get exemplary damages. Well, some people think behavior is outrageous and some people don't. We don't care if the particular person thinks behavior is outrageous or not, as long as they make the point that exemplary damages are given for outrageous behavior. Okay, that's that should be it okay uh, thank you so much Professor McDonald I'm sure listeners will enjoy this episode a lot and yeah, see you guys in the next episode and study hard bye <laughs>